Chapter 9 of Mystery of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Braymiller. Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. Chapter 9 Confidences and Secret Writing. The shore was a miracle of wild water and white foam. When the wind blows into Cruden Bay, there is no end or limit to the violence of waves, which seem to gather strength as they rush over the flat expanse of shore. The tide was now only half in, and ordinarily there would have been a great stretch of bare sand between the dunes and the sea. Tonight, however, the piling up of the water sent in an unnatural tide, which swept across the flat shore with exceeding violence. The roaring was interminable and as we stood down on the beach we were enveloped in sheets of flying foam. The fierce blasts came at moments with such strength that it was physically impossible for us to face them. After a little we took shelter behind one of the wooden bathing boxes, fastened down under the sand hills. Here, protected from the direct violence of the storm, the shelter seemed like a calm from which we heard the roaring of wind and wave as from far off. There was a sense of coziness in the shelter which made us instinctively draw close together. I could have remained happy in such proximity forever, but I feared that it would end at any moment. It was therefore with delight that I heard the voice of Miss Anita raised to suit the requirements of the occasion. Now that we are alone, won't you tell me about Gormala and the strange occurrences? I tried to speak, but the storm was too great for the purposes of narrative, so I suggested that we should come behind the sand hill. We went accordingly, and made a nest in a deep hollow behind the outer range of hillocks. Here, crouched among the tall bent, which flew like whip-lashes when the wilder bursts of the storm came, and amid a never-ending scourge of fine sand swept from the top of the sand-hills, I told her of all my experiences of Gormala and Second Sight. She listened with a rapt attention. At times I could not see her face, for the evening was closing in and the driving clouds overhead, which kept piling up in great masses along the western horizon, shut out the remnants of the day. When, however, in the pauses of drifting sand and flying foam I could see her properly, I found her face positively alight with eager intelligence. Throughout she was moved at times, and now and again crept a little closer to me, as, for instance, when I told her of the dead child and of Lucklane MacLeod's terrible struggle for life in the race of the tides amongst the scares. Her questions were quite illuminating to me at moments, for her quick woman's intuition grasped possibilities at which my mere logical faculties had shied. Beyond all else, she was interested in the procession of ghosts on Lammas Eve. Only once during my narrative of this episode she interrupted me not an intentional interruption, but a passing comment of her own, candidly expressed. This was where the body of armed men came along, at which she said, with a deep hissing intake of her breath through her teeth, Spaniards! I knew it! They were from some lost ship of the Armada! When I spoke of the one who turned and looked at me with eyes that seemed of the quick, she straightened her back and squared her shoulders, and looking all round her alertly, as though for some hidden enemy, clenched her hands and shut her lips tightly. Her great dark eyes seemed to blaze. Then she grew calm again in a moment. When I had finished, she sat silent for a while, her eyes fixed in front of her, as with one whose mind is occupied with introspection. Suddenly, she said, That man had some secret, and he feared you would discover it, 
I can see it all. He, coming from his grave, could see with his dead eyes what you could see with your living ones. Nay, more. He could, perhaps, see not only that you saw and what you saw, but where the knowledge would lead you. That certainly is a grand idea of Gormala's, that of winning the secret of the sea. After a pause of a few moments, she went on, standing up as she did so, and walking restlessly to and fro with clenched hands and flashing eyes. And if there be any secrets of the sea, why not win them? If they be of Spain, then the Spaniard, why not a thousand times more win them? If the Spaniard had a secret, be sure it was of no good to our race. Why, she moved excitedly as she went on, why, this is growing interesting beyond belief. If his dead eyes could for an instant become quick, why should not the change last longer? He might materialize altogether. She stopped suddenly and said, There, I am getting flighty as usual. I must think it all over. It is all too wonderful and too exciting for anything. You will let me ask you more about it, won't you, when we meet again? When we meet again? Then we would meet again. The thought was a delight to me, and it was only after several rapturous seconds that I answered her. I shall tell you all I know, everything. You will be able to help me in discovering the mystery. Perhaps working together, we can win the secret of the sea. That would be too enchanting, she said impulsively, and then stopped suddenly as if remembering herself. After a pause, she said sedately, I'm afraid we must be going back now. We have a long way to drive, and it will be quite late enough anyhow. As we moved off, I asked her if I might not see her and Mrs. Jack safely home. I could get a horse at the hotel and drive with them. She laughed lightly as she answered, You are very kind indeed, but surely we shall not need anyone. I am a good driver. The horse is perfect and the lamps are bright. You haven't any hold-ups here as we have out west, and as I am not within Gormala's sphere of influence, I don't think there is anything to dread. Then after a pause she added, by the way, have you ever seen Gormala since? It was with a queer feeling which I could not then analyze, but which I found afterwards contained a certain proportion of exultation, I answered. Oh, yes, I saw her only two days ago. Here I stopped, for I was struck with a new sense of the connection of things. Miss Anita saw the wonder in my face, and, drawing close to me, said, Tell me all about it. So I told her of the auction at Peterhead, and of the chest and the papers with the mysterious marks, and of how I thought it might be some sort of account. Or, I added, as a new idea struck me, secret writing. When I had got thus far, she said with decision, I am quite sure it is. You must try to find it out. Oh, you must, you must. I shall, said I, if you desire it. She said nothing, but a blush spread over her face. Then she resumed her movements toward the hotel. We walked in silence or rather we ran and stumbled, for the fierce wind behind us drove us along. The ups and the downs of the surface were veiled, with the mist of flying sand swept from amongst the bent grass on the tops of the sandhills. I would have liked to help her, but a judicious dread of seeming officious, and so losing a step in her good graces, held me back. I felt I was paying a price of abstinence for that kiss. As we went, the silence between us seemed to be ridiculous. So to get over it, I said, after searching in my mind for a topic which would not close up her sympathies with me, you don't seem to like Spaniards? No, she answered quickly, I hate them. Nasty, cruel, treacherous wretches. Look at the way they are treating Cuba. Look at the Maine. Then she added suddenly, 
but how on earth did you know i dislike them i answered your voice told me when you spoke to yourself whilst i was telling you about the ghosts and the man with the eyes true she said reflectively so i did i must keep more guard on myself and not let my feelings run away with me i give myself away so awfully i could have made a reply to this but i was afraid that kiss seemed like an embodied spirit of warning holding a sword over my head by a hair it was not long before i found the value of my silence the lady's confidence in my discretion was restored and she began of her own initiative to talk she spoke of the procession of ghosts suddenly stopping however as if she had remembered something she said to me but why were you so anxious that gramala should not have seen you saving us from the rock because i answered i did not want her to have anything to do with this what do you mean by this there was something in the tone of her query which set me on guard it was not sincere it had not that natural intonation even all through which marks a question put in simple faith rather it was in the tone of one who asks knowing well the answer which will or may be given as i have said i did not know much about women but the tone of coquetry no matter how sweet no matter how ingenuous no matter how lovable could not be mistaken by any man with red blood in his veins secretly i exulted for i felt instinctively that there rested some advantage with me in the struggle of sex the knowledge gave me coolness and brought my brain to the aid of my heart nothing would have delighted me more at the moment than to fling myself actually as well as metaphorically at the girl's feet my mind was made up to try to win her my only thought now was the best means to that end i felt that i was a little sententious as i replied to her question by this i mean the whole episode of my meeting with you and mrs jack she added interrupting me and mrs jack of course i went on feeling rejoiced that she had given me an opportunity of saying something which i would not otherwise have dared to say or rather i should perhaps say my meeting with mrs jack and her friend it was to me a most delightful thing to meet with mrs jack and i can honestly say this day has been the happiest of my life don't you think we had better be getting on mrs jack will be waiting for us she said but without any kind of reproach in her manner all right i answered as i ran up a steep sand hill and held out my hand to help her i did not let her hand go till we had run down the other side and up and down another hillock and came out upon the flat waste of sand which lay between us and the road and over which a sort of ghostly cloud of sand drifted before we left the sand i said earnestly gormala's presence seems always to mean gloom and sorrow weeping and mourning fear and death i would not have any of them come near you or yours this is why i thanked god then and thank him now that in our meeting gormala had no part she gave me her hand impulsively as for an instant her soft palm lay in my palm and her strong fingers clasped mine i felt that there was a bond between us which might some day enable me to shield her from harm when mrs jack and her friend were leaving the hotel i came to the door to see them off she said to me in a low voice as i bade farewell we shall i dare say see you before long i know that mrs jack intends to drive over here again thank you for all your kindness good night there was a shake of the reins a clatter of feet on the hard road a sweeping round of the rays of light from the lamp as the cart swayed at the start under the leap forward of the high-bred horse and swung up the steep inland roadway the last thing i saw was a dark muffled figure topped by a tam-o-shanter cap 
projected against the mist of moving light from the lamp. Next morning I was somewhat distrait. Half the night I had lain awake thinking, the other half I had dreamt. Both sleeping and waking dreams were mixed, ranging from all the brightness of hope to the harrowing possibilities of vague, undefined fear. Sleeping dreams have this difference over daydreams, that the possibilities become for the time actualities, and thus for good and ill, pleasure or pain, multiply the joys or sufferings. Through all, however, there remained one fixed hope, always verging toward belief. I should see Miss Anita. Marjorie again. Late in the afternoon I got a letter directed in a strange hand, fine and firm, with marked characteristics and well-formed letters, and just enough of unevenness to set me at ease. I am never quite happy with the writer whose hand is exact, letter by letter, and word by word, and line by line. So much can be told by handwriting, I thought, as I looked at the letter lying beside my plate. A hand that has no characteristics is that of a person insipid, a hand that is too marked and too various is disconcerting and undependable. Here my philosophizing came to an end, for I had opened the envelope, and not knowing the writing had looked at the signature, Marjorie Anita. I hoped that no one at the table de haute breakfast noticed me, for I felt that I was red and pale by turns. I laid the letter down, taking care that the blank back page was uppermost. With what nonchalance I could, I went on with my smoked hattie. Then I put the letter in my pocket, and waited till I was in my own room, secure from interruption, before I read it. That one should kiss a letter before reading it is conceivable, especially when it is the first which one has received from the girl he loves. It was not dated, nor addressed. A swift intuition told me that she had not given the date because she did not wish to give the address. The absence of both was less marked than the presence of the one alone. It addressed me as, Dear Mr. Hunter, she knew my name, of course, for I had told it to her. It was on the envelope. The body of the letter said that she was asked by Mrs. Jack to convey her warm thanks for the great service rendered, to which she ventured to add the expression of her own gratitude, that in the hurry and confusion of mind consequent on their unexpected position, they had both quite forgotten about the boat which they had hired and which had been lost, that the owner of it would no doubt be uneasy about it, and that they would both be grateful if I would see him. He lived in one of the cottages close to the harbor of Port Errol, and find out from him the value of the boat so that Mrs. Jack might pay it to him, as well as a reasonable sum for the loss of its use until he should have been able to procure another. That Mrs. Jack ventured to give him so much trouble as Mr. Hunter had already been so kind that she felt emboldened to trespass upon his goodness, and was, yours faithfully, Marjorie Anita. Of course there was a postscript. It was a woman's letter. It ran as follows. Have you deciphered those papers? I have been thinking over them as well as other things, and am convinced they contain some secret. You must tell me all about them when I see you on Tuesday. M. I fear that logic, as understood in books, had little to do with my kiss on reading this. The reasoning belonged to that higher plane of thought on which rests the happiness of men and women in this world and the next. There was not a thought in the postscript which did not give me joy, utter and unspeakable joy. And the more I thought of it, and the oftener I read it, the more it seemed to satisfy some aching void in my heart. Have you deciphered the papers? The papers whose existence was only known to her and me. It was delightful that we should know so much of a secret in common. 
She had been thinking over them, and other things, other things. I had been thinking of other things, thinking of them so often that every detail of their being or happening was photographed not only on my memory, but seemingly on my very soul. And of all these other things, there was one. To see her again, to hear her voice, to look in her eyes, to see her lips move and watch each varying expression which might pass across that lovely face, evoked by thoughts which we should hold in common, to touch her hand. I sat for a while like one in a rapturous dream, where one sees all the hopes of the heart fulfilled in completeness and endlessly. And this was all to be on Tuesday next, only six days off. I started impulsively and went to the oak chest which stood in the corner of my room and took out the papers. After looking them over carefully, I settled quietly down to a minute examination of them. I felt instinctively that my mandate, or commission, was to see if they contained any secret writing. The letters I placed aside, for the present at any rate. They were transparently simple and written in a flowing hand which made anything like the necessary elaboration impossible. I knew something of secret writing, for such had in my boyhood been a favorite amusement with me. At one time I had been an invalid for a considerable period, and had taken from my father's library a book by Bishop Wilkins, the brother-in-law of Oliver Cromwell, called Mercury, or The Secret and Swift Messenger. Herein were given accounts of many of the old methods of secret communication, ciphers, string-writing, hidden meanings, and many of the mechanical devices employed in an age when the correspondence of ambassadors, spies, and secret agents was mainly conducted by such means. This experience had set my mind somewhat on secret writing, and ever after, when in the course of miscellaneous reading, I came across anything relating to the subject, I made a note of it. I now looked over the papers to see if I could find traces of any of the methods with which I was acquainted. Before long, I had an idea. It was only a rudimentary idea, a surmise, a possibility, but still it was worth going into. It was not any cause of undue pride to me, for it came as a corollary to an established conclusion, rather than as a fine piece of reasoning from acute observation. The dates of the letters gave the period as the end of the sixteenth century, when one of the best ciphers of that time had been conceived, the bilateral cipher of Francis Bacon. To this my attention had been directed by the work of John Wilkins, and I had followed it out with great care. As I was familiar with the principle and method of this cipher, I was able to detect signs of its existence, and, this being so, I had at once strong hopes of being able to find the key to it. The bilateral cipher has, as its great advantage, that it can be used in any ordinary writing, and that its forms and methods are simply endless. All that it requires in the first instance is that there be some method arranged on between the writer and the reader of distinguishing between different forms of the same letter. In my desk I had a typewritten copy of a monograph on the subject of the bilateral cipher, in which I half suggested that possibly Bacon's idea might be worked out more fully so that a fewer number of symbols than his five would be sufficient. Leaving my present occupation for a moment, I went and got it for by reading it over I might get some clue to aid me, some thought which had already come to me, or some conclusion at which I had already arrived might guide me in this new labyrinth of figures, words, and symbols. When I had carefully read the paper, occasionally referring to the documents before me, 
I sat down and wrote a letter to Miss Anita, telling her that I had undertaken the task at once on her suggestion, and that I surmised that the method of secret writing adopted, if any, was probably a variant of the bilateral cipher. I therefore sent her my own monograph on the subject, so that if she chose she might study it and be prepared to go into the matter when we met. I studiously avoided saying anything which might frighten her or make any barrier between us. Matters were shaping themselves too clearly for me to allow myself to fall into the folly of over-precipitation. It was only when I had placed the letter, with its enclosure, in the envelope, and written Marjorie's, Miss Anita's, name, that I remembered that I had not got her address. I put it in my pocket to keep for her till we should meet on Tuesday. When I resumed my work, I began on the two remaining exhibits. The first was a sheaf of some thirty pages torn out of some black-letter law-book. The only remarkable thing about it was that every page seemed covered with dots, hundreds, perhaps thousands on each page. The second was quite different, a narrow slip of paper somewhat longer than a half-sheet of modern note-paper, covered with an endless array of figures and even lines, written small and with exquisite care. The paper was just such a size as might be put as marker in an ordinary quarto, that it had been so used was manifest by the discoloration of a portion of it that it evidently stuck out at the top of the volume. Fortunately, in its long dusty rest in the bookshelf, the side written on had been downward, so that the figures, though obscured by dust and faded by light and exposed to the air, were still decipherable. This paper I examined most carefully with a microscope but could see in it no signs of secret writing beyond what might be contained in the disposition of the numbers themselves. I got a sheet of fool's cap and made an enlarged copy, taking care to leave fair space between the rows of figures and between the figures themselves. Then I placed the copy of figures and the first of the dotted pages side by side before me and began to study them. I confined my attention at first chiefly to the paper of figures, for it struck me that it would of necessity be the simpler of the two systems to read, inasmuch as the symbols should be self-contained. In the dotted letters it was possible that more than one element existed, for the disposition of significance appeared to be of endless variety, and the very novelty of the method, it being one to which the eyes and the senses were not accustomed, made it a difficult one to follow at first. I had little doubt, however, that I should ultimately find the dot cipher the more simple of the two, when I should have learned its secret and become accustomed to its form. Its mere bulk made the supposition likely that it was in reality simple, for it would be indeed an endless task to work out, in this laborious form, two whole sheets of a complicated cipher. Over and over and over again I read the scripts of numbers, forward and backward, vertically, up and down, for the lines both horizontal and vertical were complete and exact. I read it, but nothing struck me of sufficient importance to commence with as a beginning. Of course there were, here and there, repetitions of the same combination of figures, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four together, but of the larger combinations the instances were rare and did not afford me any suggestion of a clue. So I became practical and spent the remainder of my work time that day in making by aid of my microscope an exact but enlarged copy, but in Roman letters, of the first of the printed pages. Then I reproduced the dots exactly as I could. This was a laborious task indeed. When the page was finished, half-blinded, I took my hat and went out along the shore towards Winifold. I wanted to go to the sand crags, but even to myself I said, 
Winifold, which lay further on. Men are deceivers ever, sang Balthazar in the play. They deceive even themselves at times, or they pretend they do, which is a new and advanced form of the same deceit. End of chapter 9